This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. Today, I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow here at MP, and State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. Senator Biaggi represents the 34th District in the New York State Senate, and she won her seat by primarying an incumbent Democrat from the left in 2018. I also have the great pleasure of calling her my representative and friend. Alessandra, it's wonderful to have you on the pod today. I'm so happy to be here, Nathan and Sam. It's great to join both of you very much. So we've had you on before, um, but for those who may not have heard your first interview with us, can you start by giving us a bit about your background, how you got your start, why you decided to run, um, and then we'll dig into the news of the day. Nathan, it feels like a million years ago when we had our first conversation. I can't even believe it. Um, Okay, so for those of you who don't know me or this is the first time you're tuning in um, to hear me, so my name is Alessandra Biaggi. I am the state senator for District 34, which that number means nothing probably to anybody. Some really doesn't mean anything to anybody even who lives in the district, which is highly problematic, and it just shows you how much we need civics in our schools. Nonetheless, um, I represent parts of the Bronx and Westchester. I'm four generations in this district. Um, I'm a lawyer by trade, um, a graduate of NYU, Fordham Law School, and also um, someone who cares very much about the future of our state, uh, the future of our world, and making sure that we actually have the right people in the seats to do the job. I worked on the 2016 presidential race for Secretary Clinton as her deputy national operations director. And of course, everyone knows where that led to. We lost that election. After that, I realized how many people did not know who represented them or even how to get involved in government. So I taught civics for a few months, then left that, worked for the second time for our current unfortunate governor, Andrew Cuomo. And it was in that job that I realized when I was working in his counsel's office just how corrupt our state legislature was. I say was uh, with trepidation because we are not fully out of the woods when it comes to corruption in Albany, but we definitely have made a dent. Um, My state senator at the time was a guy named Jeff Klein. He was a rogue Democrat or a Trump Democrat, as some like to call him. And for eight years or longer, he led a group of eight Democrats who had run as Democrats, elected as Democrats. But when they went to Albany, they conferenced with Republicans. What does that word conference mean? It means that instead of being in the room with the Democrats where you decide what's going to happen and what policies are in bills are going to come to the floor, he conferenced in the room with Republicans, which effectively gave the Republicans a majority. And it prevented things like immigration reform and housing and rent reform and um, the ability to codify Roe v. Wade and all of the things that we care about as New Yorkers, a majority of New Yorkers care about. And when I really understood the mechanism of their unfortunate group, the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference, um, I couldn't be quiet. And I and I couldn't be quiet despite knowing how much of an uphill battle it would be to run in this in that race. Um, we were outspent almost 11 to 1. He's, my predecessor spent 
$3 million to our 200 plus thousand dollars. Um, but we had the people and we had the people in the streets, on the doors, on the phones, texting, um, really making sure that, that everyone in District 34 knew that not only was there another choice on the ballot, but that there was someone who was pretending to actually represent their interests and wasn't. And, you know, it was a very um, long race. It was a street fight. Nathan, you remember it was a literal street fight. But you know what? It was um, it was all worth it because um, on election night, September 13th, 2018, we won and we won by 10 points. And that's not a small margin um, of winning. And what it signaled to me was that we were not only on to new leadership and onto something new, but that people were fed up with the way it always has been. And since then, we have made a lot of difference in the New York State Legislature. Um, we passed probably 98% of the bills that I campaigned on. But I want to caution everyone that a lot of the bills we passed last year and even this year were bills that were pending for almost a decade. And while it's good that we did that, it's not something that we should rest our laurels on because in order to continue progress in the state of New York and actually have justice for everybody and actually make sure that there's equality for everybody and actually make sure that everybody is free and able to pursue, pursue happiness, we have to continue progress. And this year, I've been just saddened, really, by the lack of urgency. I understand it's, it's an election year. Believe me, I get the politics more than anybody. But to me, I don't really care. What I care about is progress. And if that means losing my seat because of a vote I take, so be it. What are we doing if we're not standing for things? And so that's kind of the state of the world where I'm at right now and a little bit about my background. But there's a lot more work to be done if there's anything you take away from that. Thank you for that amazing background and, and kind of insight into your thought process. So let's start by discussing the most pressing news right now, the protests across the country in reaction mm -hmm. to the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and many more Black Americans. What are your thoughts on how these protests have been handled by mm -hmm. state and local governments, especially in New York City? I mean, it's utter failure. There's, there is no leadership in our state, and, and I, I don't say that lightly. I am known to be hyperbolic at times. By no means am I being dramatic or, um, at, you know, out of out of turn or out of line here. I sh I'm sharing every single day, every minute of every day, in the collective grief and the anger, to be honest with you, and really the rage um, as we're mourning the murder of George Floyd and and not only George Floyd, but the countless lives lost to police brutality and racism. And I stand fully in solidarity with Black communities, with communities of color, and allies who are peacefully protesting across the country. It's disturbing. It's distressing. The images that I'm watching and the videos of the members of the NYPD who are attacking protesters and using pepper spray against peaceful protesters who are demonstrating in the city, including two of my colleagues over the last few days. I mean, what have, what have we become here? There has been no leadership out of New York City with Mayor de Blasio, um, who has defended the NYPD and their behavior. In fact, he has practically celebrated them, or, or something short of that, um, doubling then the number of officers on duty and, and calling for a curfew, which we know only incites more violence, which is incendiary to many. I, you know, I want to also add that for the people who are protesting, um, what you're doing is is the right thing. You are standing for something that we all know exists and the perpetuation of the protesting has to continue 
until we see change. And so what does that look like in New York? What does that mean in New York? I mean, there is there are so many bills that we can pass in the legislature to make sure that we are holding the police accountable. I have been very vocal about it on on social media and on Twitter, but also inside of my conference, really where it it matters a lot because a lot of how the policy gets made is in that discussion. And what I feel like is happening is there is a gap between where we are and where we need to be. And in between, in order for us to bridge that gap is a listening that's required. A listening of the communities of color who have been affected by police brutality. Um, a listening by those who have not been affected by brutal- police brutality directly, but perhaps indirectly, or who have been targeted simply by the color of their skin. We have to listen to the people who have been harmed. If we have everybody on board and everybody understands and we raise the collective consciousness, there is absolutely no way that we lose the fight against racial justice, the fight against police accountability. But the problem right now, again, that stands between where we are and where we need to be is that not everybody fully understands. And part of that has to do with compassion and with empathy and putting yourself in someone else's world or shoes, as we say. But I don't think we have time really to wait any longer. And so when I look at the New York State Legislature, specifically the Senate and the Assembly, passing Senator Bailey's bill to repeal 50A, which is an exemption that allows and really gives law enforcement a reason to just, you know, it's like carte blanche. Here you go, do whatever you want and you'll never be held accountable. It's an exemption that allows law enforcement to shield abusive officers and dangerous police misconduct, period. Repealing 50A will hold police accountable and other uniformed law enforcement so that we can make sure that if you are a public servant, no matter where you serve, you are held to the same standard. Without transparency, there is no accountability. And without accountability, there is no justice. And it is alarming to me at every level how much we we try in public service to prevent the public from having the information that they deserve. We pay the salaries of the elected officials, the public servants of our communities. We deserve, therefore, to know what they're up to, who is good, who is not good, and remove those who have abused their privilege to represent the public. In addition to the repeal of 50A, I also carry a um, a bill with Assemblywoman uh, Natalia Fernandez. It's called the Andrew Kearse Act. Um, The bill was named in honor of a Bronx resident, Andrew Kearse, who died in police custody in Schenectady, New York in 2017. Um, Andrew Kearse pleaded for medical help for more than 20 times when he was sitting in the back of a police car, saying that he could not breathe. And instead of taking him to the hospital, the officer took him to the police station. He likely would have lived if he had received medical attention, but he didn't receive it. And no charges were ever brought against the officer who failed to take him to the hospital. And so what this bill aims to do is to require any police officer, peace officer, corrections officer, to provide immediate medical attention when an individual in custody has medical distress. If an officer fails to do that, and it leads to death or injury, then the officer will be held criminally negligent. And it's really sad, to be honest with you, that we have to pass a bill to require Um, A police officer who vows to protect and keep safe the public to be incentivized 
somehow to bring someone um, to get medical assistance or help if they need it. But you know what? This is where we are and this is what we have to do. And so in addition to that, I just want to mention the STAT Act um, and other measures that we have to pass. This is the time. So if you're listening to this or if you care about this issue, you've got to find out who represents you. Who's your state senator? Who is your assembly member? Call them. Gather people to call them. Call us over a thousand times if that's what it takes. We need for the people in the legislature who either don't understand this issue or have not really taken um, the time to understand this issue to be pushed because we cannot stand for a state that allows for the police as they are to treat people the way that they are treating them and specifically people of color. And we cannot allow for racism to stand, not in New York, not anywhere. So I really appreciate the that outline there. And I really loved how you talked about you can't have accountability without transparency. Mm-hmm. And really that repealing 58 is the foundational element of ensuring that the public knows who is good and who is bad. And we can really hold uh, those quote unquote bad apples accountable. What's been remarkable for me is to see how the protests against uh, the murder of George Floyd have morphed into protests against police brutality mm-hmm. because those protests have been met with more police brutality and seeing that develop and morph over time has been really uh, drastic for me personally. And I want to talk a little bit about the scope of police in our society, right? We have uh, police who aren't teachers, but they're stationed in schools. We have police who aren't social workers who have to deal with homelessness. We have police who aren't psychologists that have to work with addiction. So we have asked police officers to take on so much more than they are trained to do um, that was originally in their job description. So can you talk a little bit about how we can boost services outside of police and correction officers to get us away from immediately calling in police that are heavily militarized to deal with every situation? I mean, that's such a good question. And the reason it's a good question is because when it comes down to it, um, probably the top of the list, the first thing that we can do is we can reduce the budget that our police departments are given. When we look at the budget of the NYPD, the budget yearly is $6 billion. Think about that for a second, okay? When we are, when we are funding our public schools, we have to fight tooth and nail to basically beg because that's where we're at in the state of New York um, with the power, power dynamic and power balance between the legislature and the executive, beg to provide a billion dollars of school funding. A billion dollars. Think about how many students there are. Think about the importance of education. And yet we st- we give one police department in the state of New York $6 billion. Now, you know, for anybody who would say, well, it's New York City and New York City is a risk and, you know, there's a, a threat of terrorism and there's a threat of all kinds of things. That's true. And yet that $6 billion, in my opinion, has really been used in vain. When we talk about how police are trained, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading and a lot of listening. And one of the things that was startling to me was to learn that 90%, 90% of the training of a police officer is on how to use their gun. Think about that. If you are using 90% of your training on how to use your gun, what's the first thing that you're going to do when you're in a, in a moment of crisis? You're going to reach for your gun because that is what you know. That is that, that is what makes you and, and forms your thinking about how to deal with quote unquote alleged crime. In addition to that, I mean, the fact that we do not require serious 
and thoughtful training on racial bias is alarming to me. It is it is the most devastating thing in the world. My sister the other day called me and she feels like many people feel hopeless and doesn't know what to do or how to help and and is really just reaching out to me because she thinks that I have the answers, which I don't have all the answers. But what I said to her was this. Her name is Christina and I was like, "Christina, if we are going to do anything, there are two sides of this issue. The first one is that in every single school, for every single child coming through our public school system and our private school system, we've got to make sure that there is age-appropriate education on racism. I don't care what it takes. That is what we have to do. That is our responsibility. And on that side, that's the policy side. That's the government, what the government has to do. On the other side, for the adults who have already you know, formed, quote-unquote, their opinions, Part of what we have to do is every workplace has to be equipped with the ability to train people on racism and racial bias. And it also means that personally, as citizens, as people, what we have to do is learn how to dismantle it on a day-to-day basis. Because no matter where we go and what we do, it is easy to be able to identify when people make comments or do things that are racist, to be perfectly honest. And what I'm not asking for or not calling for is people to just stand up screaming about, you know, you're racist. You can do that if you want to. Okay. What I'm saying is that we are engaging people in meaningful conversation, challenging people's thinking, asking them and being curious, what makes you think that? Why do you think that way? That is how individuals can do it. And it's one conversation at a time. Having conversations at our our, our dinner table, you know, we oftentimes are looking outside of our own homes before we actually fix our houses, so to speak. And I think about that a lot because I, I am in a family with a majority of Democrats um, there are some Republicans. They're getting they're they're dwindling down because of the pressure I think we put on them to change parties. But you don't have to be a Democrat or Republican not to be racist, right? This is what I'm talking about is challenging the thinking of people who may not even know why they think something or have never even questioned it themselves. And we all have blind spots and we can illuminate those blind spots in thoughtful and loving ways. And that's our responsibility to do that. So on an overall, I think, curve towards justice, making sure that we're teaching children the right framework of our history, addressing racism and also acknowledging it, and and making sure that we're dealing with the adults and, and the teenagers and the seniors that live in our communities who may have thinking from, from you know yesteryear, archaic thinking. But most importantly, collectively, until we actually look at racism from an honest lens, meaning we acknowledge that in the United States of America, we really have not taken this issue on in the same ways that Germany has with the Holocaust or South Africa has with the apartheid. You can't walk the streets of Germany without being reminded of the Holocaust. They are fully in awareness and in, they are the people in Germany are embarrassed by that history. We should be embarrassed by the history of racism and slavery in the United States of America. And yet we still have schools, public schools that are named after generals from the Confederate army. We still have Confederate flags flying and allow for those symbols of hate to be on flagpoles in our state capitals and and around the country. It it is until we acknowledge it, we will not overcome it. So we've got to do 
everything we can on every on every account in order to address it. Otherwise, what I fear is that all of this action and this um, enthusiasm in a, in full of rage will just be used in vain. And so, the last thing I'll say about that is that it doesn't matter how you vote, but you gotta vote. You gotta vote. You have to vote. You have to vote. You have to vote because if you don't vote, everything you scream about is pointless. You have got to vote and you have to make sure you're behind people who actually are aligned with your values because we have to change the power and we have to take the power as a millennial and acknowledging that we we as millennials and Generation Z will be the largest voting bloc in American history. That is more powerful than the current setup that we have as is. This, this, is, this is our power and we have to take it. And so... There's a lot more I can say about that, but really, ultimately, at the end of the day, each and every person is so powerful, and it is up to us to empower them, to teach them, and also to listen. So, you know, I actually, I want to reiterate kind of one of the points you made about the NYPD budget. So, obviously, cities around the country have been facing um, shortfalls in tax revenue due to uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic. And so, in mid-May, before these protests started, Mayor de Blasio unveiled um, kind of his plan for cuts to city services. And so his proposal was that the NYPD's nearly $6 billion budget would dip just under $24 million, which is a 0.39% cut. But during the same period, funding for the Department of Education was poised to drop by $827 million, a 3% cut of its overall budget. So that kind of just goes to show where those priorities are. Um, I want to follow up, though, about kind of the role of the police in these protests that we talked about earlier. What do you want to see from city and government leadership and police during this time? What should Mm -hmm. their role play in these protests? Well, first of all, let me just say that our budget reflects our values. And if anybody tries to claim otherwise, they're lying to you, right? Where we put our money is, is really where all of the things that we care about matter. And so it clearly shows us or signals to us what the city and state care about when they don't actually fund our schools, but they put more money towards law enforcement. What I want to see from our leaders at the executive level of our cities and our state is honesty. How hard is it to acknowledge with your eyes what you're seeing is wrong? Police should not be beating protesters in the street, period, period. They should not be increasing the violence and antagonizing or or instigating people who are full of pain and suffering and harming them. I mean, watching our governor and our mayor say that the police are either doing a good job or that the protesters shouldn't be looting. Okay, we can talk about the looting piece of this. Obviously, I don't think anybody agrees that we want people to be looting. Okay, but let, let's look at that. We should first be saying police should not be killing black and brown men. And also we shouldn't be looting. Not we shouldn't be looting and police brutality is bad. Our priorities are twisted, right? And it signals to me that they don't get it. They really don't get it. And, and if it wasn't clear enough, putting, a, putting you know, double the police into the streets is not the answer. Ramming a police car into people is not the answer. Being aggressive with the public is not the answer. Trapping people on a bridge to teach them a lesson is not the answer. 
it's not the what every every method they have taken is not the answer. They need to listen and not escalate. When I look around the country at other police departments, it makes me feel angry that the other police departments are holding the hands of protesters and the officers are walking with the protesters. They are kneeling with them. Now, let's just be clear about something. That doesn't mean that they're off the hook for, you know, no accountability. That's step number one. That's an acknowledgement that the people that they are serving are hurting. The NYPD has done the complete opposite. Think about that. In the city of New York, which represents, really it does represent, the progressive beacon of the world. People come here from all over the world to be free, to be to have self, full self-expression, to pursue whatever profession that they want. Uh, and look at where we are. We are in a place where we have the greatest city in the world, or at least perhaps once the greatest city in the world. I'm not going to argue that it's not. It is the greatest city in the world. But I think that people are looking at us like, what is going on? And, and that's scaring me, to be honest with you, because I do believe New York City is the greatest city in the world. Looking at us, and, and we have this police department that is so out of touch, and a mayor who has the ability to check them and to say, not the time, this is not right, who has completely lost control of the NYPD. And it makes me feel very sad. So what I would like for them to do, full stop, is to tell the truth. Just tell the truth. What is going on is sad. Police should not be violent against protesters. It's a First Amendment fundamental right. This is outrageous. And I cannot believe I'm living to see the day that this is happening in New York. You know, for people who are saying, well, we're a democracy. No, wake up, everybody, because here's the thing. Our democracy is at risk. It is at massive risk. We had the president of the United States pepper spray protesters to take a picture in front of a church. Give me a break. We are on the brink of moving into a territory that I don't think many people even can comprehend what it would be like. We have to fight back. And if they're not going to listen, we have to replace them. I don't care. From the governor to the mayor to any legislative leader who will stand in the way of making progress, they are not on the right side of history. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So I want to transition now to talk about replacing people in power, right? I want to talk about the upcoming elections. Um, we saw just this week that Ferguson elected the first black female mayor of the city. We saw that you know Representative Steve King lost his primary in Iowa. So our system of elections is still working. It's slower than people like, but change is made at the ballot box. And I think you made that point earlier so well. So I want to transition to talk about the rapidly concluding Democratic primary here. You originally endorsed Elizabeth Warren in her bid for the pres presidency. And then just a few weeks ago, 
she actually turned around, returned the favor, and endorsed you as one of her Warren Democrats. What does that endorsement mean to you? How are you and her other endorsees going to bring her vision to reality? Hmm. So first, I just want to say that <clears throat> I think I, I know I know it's just like a it's like a sleight of tongue, but I don't think that Warren is someone who functions in the context of favors. And I know that I I I'm not alleging that you think that, but I want I want it to be really clear to everybody that even though I endorsed her, there was no sure thing that she would turn around and do that, right? There was no deal made. That's not, it, it has to be super clear to everybody that when when we take stands for things, when you ask for things in return, it's not taking a full stand. So I want to be serious about that because I think that so much of what we see in the Bronx is like, let's make a deal over here and you do, it's like enough, right? Like enough of that. Anyway, Warren, it is. It, it was a painful day when Warren dropped out of um, the presidential race because what she represents to myself and to so many people is an, in, an intelligence and an understanding and an empathy of issues that is unrivaled. She has set the example of the rigor and the scope of her policy ideas, um, her commitment to transforming the structures that perpetuate racial and economic inequality in our country. Um, she has articulated the vision of the future of what it means to be the United States of America and a theory of change to get us there. She, she has represented the excitement and, and the importance of having all of the voices represented at the table. You know, Warren has argued, I think, many, many times the incredible need to balance our system of politics in order to make any changes that we all are yearning for. She has advocated and lobbied for reform to the way that Congress operates. She is anti-corruption. Um, everything that she embodies, I could go on and on and on and on and on, it is, is something that I aim on a, on a really day-to-day -day basis to emulate in my own work. And it means advocating for structural change. One of the examples that I can really use to highlight this is, you know, I recently introduced a bill to overturn <laughs> what I know, Nathan, you know about, which is Silver v. Pataki. It's a court case that was decided in the state of New York at, at the highest level. Don't get me started on it. Don't get me started on it. <laughs> it is really a, a, a decision that our highest court made that just ruined the balance of power when it came to the budget process. Um, between the legislature and the executive. What does it really, what does it do? It gave the executive branch of government so much power that basically the legislature is rendered useless, to be honest. We have no leverage when it comes to the budget process. As I mentioned earlier, the budget represents our values and the state budget is central to public policy making and meeting the needs of New Yorkers. It controls not only appropriations, but also a major major amount of legislative activity each year because policy goes into that budget. And we could talk about that another day. Our role as legislators is to make thoughtful policy decisions in the interests of the people that we represent. But we cannot do that. It is practically impossible to do that when the executive has almost unilateral control over the contents of the budget items before us. Even though the Senate and the Assembly can negotiate with the executive to adjust proposals, at the end of the day, if the executive wants something to be included in the budget, it will be, period. So how the Constitution is written and currently interpreted, the executive becomes a quote-unquote quasi-legislator 
and uses the budget as a vehicle to pass its own agenda, circumventing us as the legislature and the legislative process um, without discussion to the public, also circumvents the public because things are shoved into the budget at the last minute. And so I think what we're seeing is that New Yorkers are feeling like the budget does not reflect their priorities. And when I, I could go to talk to Girl Scouts, I could go and talk to the PTA, I could talk to the CEO of a business, or I could talk to the president of a college. It makes no difference. People do not feel like the government that exists as is, is most closely attuned to, to their will, period. And to be honest with you, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't. And I would be lying if I said it was. And I cannot properly do my job and deliver for the district or for the state when I'm working within a framework that does not give me a fair shot at all to fight for their priorities, right? It's not fair. It makes the voice of the people subdued and almost irrelevant. There are three branches of government for a reason, co-equal branches of government. It makes zero sense to me that in a democracy that prides itself on checks and balances, this practice is lost in the process. It is, it is totally ridiculous. So in order to regain and to make sure that the legislature has its fair share of bargaining power to lift the voices of the people, we have to overturn that court decision, Silver v. Pataki, and pass a constitutional amendment. This is the kind of structural change and process-oriented change that is just like what Senator Warren has advocated for. And it's really necessary to making sure that the policy outcomes that we all call, call for and care about are going to happen in the state of New York. And so she has really influenced me in a very big way. And one just final note on her, you know, on, on the days that are very hard, which lately it seems like there are many of them, looking to people around you who could present mentorship opportunities, right? The people who are standing up and doing the right thing are so deeply important and meaningful to not losing your North Star, to not feeling alone, because a lot of this work, when you're on the side of these things that are not quote unquote popular, although let's be real, this will be popular and people will find it popular, but it's just like everything else. In the beginning, people say, you're crazy. This will never happen. Go home. Be quiet. That's when, by the way, you know you're onto something. But that's the th those moments feel very lonely. And so when I look around and I'm seeing leaders like her, it is meaningful to me. And it also is meaningful to me that she believes enough in me to endorse my reelection, as well as many other New York legislators, including one of my dearest friends, my best friend, truly, um, Assemblywoman Yuli New, who has a primary currently right now. Why does she have a primary? Even though she's one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive uh, member of the assembly, because she speaks out, because she uses her voice, because she knows that systemic racism and predatory lending and redlining and all the things that we care about to undo are at the central point of where the power is and, and how in order to take the power out of the hands of those who have really abused um, low-income communities, communities of color, you have to speak up and you have to speak out. And when you speak up and you speak out, even if it's the right thing to do, people don't like it. People in power don't like it if it's threatening their power dynamic. And so having her endorsement, Senator Warren's endorsement is important and it's powerful because it signals to us, keep going. You're on the right track. You're not alone. And that's very important in the work that we do. So I didn't want to, I just want to make one thing clear. I didn't mean to imply any type of quid pro quo or anything there, but I, I really love how you, 
I love how you brought it full circle and, and you went into the structural change that Senator Warren believes in and the structural change that you're trying to make here in New York State. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into the weeds, go inside baseball with our district, the district in which we live, um, for the New York 16th primary. Andam Gebegorgis dropped out and endorsed Jamal Bowman, who is now the main challenger to the incumbent Congressman Representative Elliot Engel. Uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also recently endorsed Jamal Bowman, as well as city councilman Brad Lander, other progressive leaders as well. So what's your take on this race for your potential colleague in the House of Representatives? Here's my take. In the beginning of, and in the, excuse me, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, I took a pretty firm stand on the fact that this was not the year to be primarying Democrats, that this was not the time to do that because we had a very important presidential race coming up, perhaps the most important election and race of our entire lifetimes. Um, and that goes, it's pervasive throughout generations. And that my focus was mainly going to be on that race. And what that meant was I was not going to get involved in any of the other races. Since then, the world has changed significantly. Okay. We have, we have, and I, I say we have, and I was about to say we had, I wish, I wish it was a past thing, but we are living through a pandemic that has brutalized, okay, brutalized the Bronx. The Bronx has the worst outcomes of health before pa the pandemic, meaning it has the highest rates of asthma, diabetes, hypertension, all of the things that make people sick, people in the Bronx have. And that's not, that's not an accident. During the pandemic, it has ravaged the Bronx, the most deaths, the most cases. Um, it has been devastating beyond something I can even articulate for you to go through what we are going through right now. To be honest with you, that experience was painful and still is painful. And in the, in the throes of it, when we were, you know, not even on the top of the curb or we're climbing up the curb, the needs that I see on a regular basis, right? The food insecurity, the need for medical assistance, the need for people to have help with their um, rent and their mortgage payments and all the things we know because of income inequality and the inability to save and all the predatory lending issues that we have and non-access to public banking and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're exacerbated on a level beyond anything I have ever experienced and hope to ever experience in my life. It, 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 it deeply pains me still and will probably stay with me for the rest of my life. In addition to that, at the same time, we experienced and have and continue to experience police brutality, you know, in, in, in such a, it, it is such a, um, God, it's like, it's like a perfect storm in the Bronx you have police brutality that it exists. It exists everywhere. And you have it because of racial inequalities and again, systemic racism. And when you combine the two things, the pandemic and the police brutality and the protests and everything that's going on, and you look around, okay, you look left and you look right and you wonder who's speaking out against these things, who's fighting, who's making sure that people have food, who's making sure that people are taken care of. The number of people who have remained silent is alarming. It's alarming and it is deeply disturbing to me. And so all of that just to say that my feelings and my position 
has significantly shifted, significantly shifted because we are in a new world than where we were at the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. By no means, do not mistake the fact that we have an important presidential election coming up. Again, we have to vote. There's nothing else to say about that. Vote, register to vote, go to the polls, and don't talk to me if you haven't voted because honestly, it's devastating when people don't vote. You gotta vote. But when it comes to NYCD 16, this is a district where you have the largest Mitchell Lama housing project in the entire country in Co-op City. You have Mount Vernon in Westchester County, which I also represent, where people have been infected and have died at rates that are, they really, they rival certain areas in the Bronx that have had some of the highest rates. People are suffering. And yet, what did we see? We saw an elected official, a member of Congress, who said that he was in the district handing out food, wasn't, so lied, who has been predominantly silent when it comes to communities of color, what they're experiencing, structural change, racism. I mean, honestly, we don't have time for that, okay? We have an obligation to fight like hell to make sure that our communities are actually represented by somebody who wants to be there. Take aside the comment that was on... um, that was picked up on the mic. I get it. I understand. It, it's not, it's not, it was not a good thing that he said, right? Like, I wouldn't care if I didn't have a primary. I think it was taken out of context, even though it's a stupid thing to have said, to be honest. It really is. Like, don't say that, please. But separately from that, we need somebody who is focused on the future. So my opinion about where I stand right now, without taking a formal position, is that my full support behind Angle is not there anymore. It's just not. I cannot, in good faith, stand on my two feet and represent this district, which by the way, overlaps with CD16 and watch as my constituents and the voters in this district are harmed by the lack of courage that the people who represent this borough and this district take every single day. They take it for granted. They take their privilege for granted. And I am sorry, but we do not have time for that. And I will not stand for that. So stay tuned to see what happens. I'm still making a decision about you know what to do formally but I will just say straight up I cannot stand behind somebody who refuses to stand for a district that is in great need at a time when we are in a transformational moment of change and we have people who are silent no Senator Viaggi, Alessandra, thank you for coming on. I, I want to say that you are a true public servant. You're an inspiration to me. I know you're an inspiration to many. Uh, we we are lucky to have you representing us in Albany, and we are very fortunate to have you come on this podcast. Nathan and Sam, I am so happy to be here with both of you, and I'm glad to have this conversation. Thank you for what you're doing, giving a platform to all the things that are happening across the country in New York. We need everybody to listen and to pay attention and to know how powerful they are. And you allow them to know that. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. And to our listeners, find us on social media at Malen Politics. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the Google Play Store. Visit our website, millennialpolitics.co. And of course, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks. Thanks.